Well, folks, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a, uh, a, a believer in Jesus Christ, the Scripture teaches that you and I have been freed from sin. Sin no longer has any power over us at all. Isn't that good news? Man, praise the Lord. Now, I do kind of wonder if any of us actually experience that. <laughs> you know, that, that's what the Scripture teaches. And you know what? I'm not going to go to God and say, Hey, you, you know, Lord, I just think you missed it on this one. I, I, you're wrong. Sin, sin still has a lot of influence. Sin, sin still has a lot of power in my life. I wouldn't say that to the Lord. But now I might say, Gosh, Lord, it sure doesn't feel like I'm dead to sin. It, it sure doesn't feel like it has no more power over me. We're going to look at a passage today, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. In Romans 6, it is going to explain, it's going to communicate to us this truth that we are dead to sin. But it's also going to communicate a process by where what is true of us becomes a reality that we can live, a reality that we can experience. Let's look and see how Paul does that this morning. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we've got some in the chairs in front of you. I hope you can grab one or have somebody hand it to you and uh, read along with us. Romans chapter 6, and I'm going to begin in verse 1. It says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may multiply? Well, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new life. For we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death. We will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For, the, for we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished. So that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, no longer dies. Death no longer rules over him. For in that he died, he died to sin once for all. But in that he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That you should obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under law, but under grace. Now here's the bottom line. We cannot sin anymore. We, we cannot let self be the drive behind so many thoughts. We cannot lie. We cannot steal. We cannot cheat. We cannot hate. We, we cannot give life to bitterness and anger. We cannot lash out in anger. We cannot ignore or choose to remain ignorant of a whole body of commands that are to be governing your life and my life daily. Commands that have nothing to do with but how we relate with each other in what we call the church. 
How we relate to each other, how we help each other, how we serve together in this world. Did you know there was a multitude of commands to be governing your life about that? We, we can't ignore that. We, we can't lie. Um, we can't worship money. We can't be unwise with money. And we can't steal God's money. We can't curse. We can't sin. Folks, it's just that simple. We are not to sin. And what the scripture tells us here is that we're now in Christ dead to that. We don't have to sin. But boy, it's a little bit of a process. It's a little bit of a process to take that truth and see it become our experience. To take that truth and see it become our reality. And that's what Paul's doing for us in this passage. Now the passage opens with some rhetorical questions there in verse 1 and 2. A couple of questions. And the questions kind of roll out of something he finished chapter 5 with. When we were near the end of chapter 5, we saw that, that great verse in 20 that says, Man, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Man, where you've got sin, God's got grace. Where you've got more sin, God's got more grace. God's got all the grace you need to cover any and every sin in your life. Now, when you think about what we've been learning since chapter 4, man, we have seen that, that salvation is God's work, not ours. I don't, I don't do anything to make salvation happen. I don't do anything to get it. I don't do anything to secure it. It's all God's work. We've seen that it is a free gift. I don't pay for it. It's God's gift. We have seen that, that no matter what kind of sin is in my life, God's got the grace to cover it. Now, that can kind of lead to a very natural question. Does sin even matter anymore? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to keep me out of heaven. God's forgiveness has, has got me covered and so we ask the question, does sin really matter? Is, is it a big deal? Is it okay? Now, you know, we can ask that question in a couple of different ways. On, on this end of the spectrum, we can ask that question really just kind of trying to sort through a, a, a theological question, a biblical question. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to put together here what God's saying, and it seems like, man, it doesn't really matter if I sin. God's got it covered. And, and then all the way down here, the other end of the spectrum is the person who says, man, I got my insurance, let's sin. Man, the, the more I sin, the more God shows grace. Everybody wins. And, and then there's, I guess there's several attitudes in between. But the bottom line is, is sin okay? And you see Paul's answer there, don't you? What's he say? In, in my translation, it said, absolutely not. Maybe in your translation, it says, God forbid, or, or may it never be. In the Greek language, that phrase right there is the strongest negative emphatic used anywhere in the New Testament. In other words, when Paul says that, he's red in the face. <laughs> when Paul says that, he broke his pencil as, as he was writing it. it. It just boggles Paul's mind. Now, when he's saying absolutely not, He's not coming around and saying, no, 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 sin's not a free gift. I mean, it's kind of a free gift, but you've got to pay for it too. He's not saying, well, yeah, salvation is a work of God, but your sin can undo it. No, he, he's not changing any of what he said. I think what Paul's doing is, is, is he's expressing that it just, it boggles his mind. That you or I, that somebody could understand this kind of love. Receive this kind of love. Receive this kind of gift. And the only question they're left with is, so is it okay if I sin? <laughs> so God's got me covered if I, if I sin, right? 
And, and Paul says, no, it's not okay. And, and in verses 2 and 3 and 4, he's saying, hey man, you've changed teams. You're, you're not on team sin. You're not on team Satan anymore. You're on team Jesus. You died to that old team. You died to that old way. You died to that old master. That relationship doesn't exist anymore. You're now team Christ. You're on his team. You identified with him. And, and Paul takes us back to our baptism. Now he's kind of running around. He's skirting around water baptism. But he's talking about a bigger issue than just water baptism. But he takes us back there. And he says, remember when you were baptized? Remember when you first came to team Jesus? And that word baptism, as you've heard me say a lot of times before, it means to immerse. In other words, when Jesus commands, when other New Testament writers command, be baptized as a follower of Christ, what, what they're saying is, be immersed as a follower of Jesus. Be, be submerged underneath the water. No writer, Jesus, doesn't suggest anywhere another way or anything less than that. We are to be immersed and, and when you've got that picture, it begins to bring the rest of these verses to life. Because Paul's painting a picture here. He said, man, as Christ died to sin, you died to sin. And when you went into those waters of baptism, you were showing that you died, remember? See how important the picture of immersion is? He says, when you, when, because see, not only does baptism mean immersion, but it means to identify with. So I identified with Christ by going into those waters. I did what he did. I identified with Christ in that as Christ was dead and buried, so too I died and was buried. I died. Randy Hahn died to sin. Randy Hahn died to the old way of life. And we buried him. And the waters of baptism was a picture of that. And then, and then as we were brought up, man, there's an identification with resurrection. I, I've been lifted up from the dead and I've been resurrected to a new way of life. So sin is no longer at all what I identify with. It's no longer, it's inconsistent with who I am. And Paul's idea is that those waters of baptism where I identified with Christ, that's just the beginning. Because as I come up out of those waters, I begin of a life of identifying with Christ everywhere I go and in everything I do and every way I think. Did Christ think lightly of sin? Can you go to a passage where you see Christ thinking, ah, it's no big deal. No, he didn't think lightly of sin. Do you, can you go to a passage where you see Jesus justifying sin? Well, you shouldn't have done that, but gosh, under the circumstances, in light of what they did... No, nowhere does he justify sin. Can we go to a passage where Jesus says, oh, just, yeah, just, just go over there and get it over with and come back. My, my father and I, we got the grace to clean you up. No, folks, nowhere do we see Jesus approach sin lightly, treat it lightly, justify it, make it like it's no big deal. No, he thinks sin's a big deal. Who am I identifying with? I'm to be identifying with Christ. You see, as I went into those waters of baptism and the water immersed me, the water enveloped me, Paul's idea is the same thing is happening when we identify, when we're immersed in Christ. When, when, when I came out of those waters, I wasn't just immersed in water. I'm now immersed in Jesus. I'm enveloped in His ways, His desires, His purposes. We walk like we, He walks. We talk like He talks. We have completely identified with, look at the end of verse 4, 
a new way of life. The old way, verse 6, the old way of life was sin in control, sin in power. But we've now identified with a new way of life. And Paul says, no, that sin's completely inconsistent with who you are now. You cannot sin. It's just that easy. Except that it's not that easy, right? <laughs> yeah, I can't sin. But boy, it sure is easy to fall into sin. And that's what Paul's going to give us now is a, is a process where sin can become less and less and less a part of our life. Where sin has less and less control. And this process, by the way, has a name. It's sanctification. In chapters 4 and 5, we looked at justification. Justification is God declaring us holy. Justification is something that happens in the courts of heaven. Heaven. You are legally declared holy. Now that's not a statement about how you're living. That's not a statement about whether you're acting holy, thinking holy, being holy. It is a statement that says, by the blood of Jesus Christ and by your faith in that blood, God has declared you holy. You are in right standing with God. That's justification. Sanctification is the process by which that declaration comes to life in me. Sanctification is that process where that declaration of holiness begins to live in me and I begin to grow in holy and I begin to live in holy. And folks, don't we need to remember we are to be holy? There's probably not another word that should more describe your life, your day, your week than the word holy. You remember 1 Peter chapter 1, 15 and 16. It says, as the one who has called you is holy. So you also be holy. What's it say? What are those next four words? In all your conduct. Let's say that all together. Be holy in all your conduct. All. All, all of my conduct as I walk down the hallway at school. All of my conduct as I sit in the classroom. All of my conduct as I relate with people at work. The people above me, the people below me, the people around me, the people I like, the people I don't like. In all my conduct with them, I am to be holy. In all my conversations, the planned conversations, the I've been thinking about it all week long conversations, to the I didn't even know I was going to have that conversation conversation, I am to be holy. To be holy in front of the computer. To be holy in front of the TV. To be holy in my marriage. Holy in parenting. Holy with the people I love the most. And holy with the people not so much. Holy. That's to define us. How? How do we become holy? How do we grow in this holiness? I want you to see, I'm going to show you a process that Paul has in here that's kind of centered around three words. Look at these three words. Verse 6 is the word no. If you, got, you may want to circle that word or underline that word, especially if you're using your own Bible. Verse 6 is the word no, for we know, we're going to look at a second at what we know. Look at verse 11. So to consider, your passage may say consider, it might say reckon, underline, circle that word. And then verse 13, kind of there in the middle of it, I've got the word offer. Offer. Your, your passage may say present. So know, consider, 
and offer. Folks, these three words give us a path to living out what is true about us, to living out the reality of holiness. First word, know. What are we to know? We are to know that we are dead to sin. Dead to sin and alive to God. We we are to know that when we united with Christ, when we identified with him, we became dead to sin. It is no longer the master over us. Now that's where we want to say, gosh, Lord, I, I sure feel alive to sin. I, I sure feel like it's still around, uh, you know, in me. I mean, sometimes, Lord, I feel, I feel so overwhelmed. I mean, there's the temptation and, and I try to resist it. And, and maybe, maybe I'm successful at resisting it for a moment. But gosh, it seems to come back around and knock me down later. And I'm, and I'm fighting sin there. It sure feels alive. And of course, folks, let's be honest. Sometimes it's not even an issue of temptation and resisting and fighting. Sometimes I can just sin. I didn't have to think about it. I didn't have to fight it. Boom, I just sinned. It sure feels like sin is alive, doesn't it? But look at what it says here in verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion. And that may be the key word to understanding this. That sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. Sin is dead. Folks, before Christ came into our lives, before we identified with him, sin was the master of this house. Sin, sin was the manager of this body. Now that, do, that doesn't mean that every thought I had was sinful. That doesn't mean that every act in my life was sinful. That all I was doing was sin. Doesn't mean that. It does mean the guiding principle in my life was one of sin, not holiness. Sin was the guiding principle. So I, gosh, I, you know, I know a lot of people who are really, they seem pretty nice, pretty good. Let me tell you something. Here's the, the first key to sin. Self. You can be an incredibly nice person and self-drive every single thought in your life. What's good for me? What makes me look good? What makes me feel good? What turns out well for me? When self is the driver, sin's in management. Okay? Now, when we united with Christ, that died. Sin's power, sin's claim to us died. We no longer have that relationship where I, and here's the operative word, have to answer to it. See, when it had dominion over me, when it had rule over me, when sin came knocking, I had to answer. Now I don't have to answer. I I don't have to answer to it. Now that doesn't mean that I don't have a memory system. You see, under sin, some of that sin became learned behavior. I learned that, that when I got scared, I acted this way. When I got offended, I acted this way. When I got mad, I acted this way. Uh, when, I, when I was thinking immorally, I acted this way. You see, we get a learned behavior there. So sin may not be in control, but I've got a memory system that's still running. Because that sin is dead does not mean that sin won't still come around the house. Try to bully us. Try to make us think that we have to answer to it. You ever had the thought, and the, the answer to this question, by the way, is yes, you have. Have you ever had the thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm just going to go over there and I'm going to do this, sin. I'm going to do this and, and then I'm, I just want to, I want to get the guilt, I want to get the fight, I want to get the frustration over, I'm just going to sin and then I'll come back and I'll ask for forgiveness. Jesus and I will clean that up. Yeah, we've all fought like that. And when we're, fought, when we're thinking like that, folks, what we're saying is, I'm out of control 
I, I have no power here. I must answer to sin. I cannot resist that. It is in control. It is in charge. I have to answer to the voice of sin. And what the scripture is saying is, no, you do not have to answer to it. Quit lying to yourself. That's not the truth. The truth is, you don't have to answer to the voice of sin. You answer to the voice of Christ. Ah, but here comes my frustration. Here comes my problem. I'm used to the voice of sin. I'm used to that voice and I'm used to how to immediately respond. I'm not so used to the voice of Christ. I haven't learned that voice. I haven't learned that behavior yet. And folks, here's where I go back to what I was saying a second ago. I, I use the term muscle memory. If you're, if you're a golfer, I'm not. But if you're a golfer, you, you understand this. When you golf, you want to learn the perfect swing. And once you've got that perfect swing, you want to practice it like say 10,000 times in a row. Because what you're aiming at is muscle memory. You want your muscles to memorize the perfect swing so that when you step up, you don't have to think, okay, how far are my feet, my hips? Okay, how am I approaching the ball? Okay, come back. You, you don't have to think through all that. Your muscles take over and the muscle memory takes place and the perfect swing is produced. The problem is none of you, because I've seen some of you play golf, <laughs> none of you have learned the perfect swing. But it's not just an issue of not learning the perfect swing. What you have learned is a bad swing. Not only have you learned a bad swing, you have perfected that bad swing. And that you have practiced it over and over and over and over. Watch this. So now though I desperately want to hit that ball right, I desperately want to be good, I desperately want to do good, I want it with all my heart, this muscle memory takes over and out comes the bad swing. I didn't want that, but that's what's produced. Folks, you realize we can take golf and swing and ball out of this and we're talking about the Christian life, aren't we? You see, I have memorized the way of sin. It can be completely true of us that we're dead to sin. It has no control and no power. But that muscle memory, that memory of sin is in there so strong that what I step up and naturally do is sin. So Paul, our coach, says, man, we got to fix this swing. We, we've got to fix this. And the first step in fixing this swing is you've got to start telling yourself the truth. You are dead to sin. You do not answer to sin. You've got to look at sin. When that temptation is there, when that opportunity for sin there, I don't answer to you, I answer to Christ. You cannot get this. You cannot fix this. You cannot begin moving in the direction if you don't start with what you need to know. I don't answer to sin. I answer to Jesus. Okay? That's what I've got to know. Now, the second thing we've got to do is consider. Look at verse 11. You see it says, they're a very simple statement. We're all dead to sin, alive to Christ. That, that little phrase right there, dead to sin, alive to Christ. A little bit of a summary statement of the first 10 verses. The operative word there is consider or reckon. In other words, Paul summarizes the, the first 10 verses and says, Now, reckon this true about you. Consider it true about you. You see, folks, there's a difference just between believing a body of information out there and believing it for you. In the fall of 1983, I showed up at the campus of, of Texas A&M moving my stuff into Kane Hall, the athletic dorm, because I was a scholarship athlete at Texas A&M. I had a legal document that said so. It's called a letter of intent. I signed it. A&M signed it. I was a scholarship athlete. Not only did I have a legal document, not only had it been declared, I had a uniform. 
Folks, a uniform is a picture of baptism. I was identified. You put this uniform on, I'm identified with the team. I am immersed in maroon, okay? I'm enveloped in maroon. You could see me from 100 yards, 200 yards away. You would know if there's 100 people out there what team I was on. It was clearly identified. I was clearly united. So I absolutely know I am a scholarship athlete at Texas A&M. But you know what? I sure didn't feel like it. Man, I tell you what, I was intimidated with a capital I when I showed up there at Kane Hall. First day or two there, uh, I ate breakfast. I, I, I went down and, you know, got my tray of food and, and I carried it over and I sat down and I had my arms on the table because my mom wasn't there. And, uh, you, know, you know, I sat down and my arm, Randy's arm was right next to Ray Childress' arm. Ray Childress was a defensive end for Texas A&M. He went on to play for what was then the Houston Oilers and became a five-time pro bowler. Hulk of a, man, a beast, an animal. And I sat down, and it's like the second day I'm there. I sat down, and I look at my arm, and I look at his arm, and I thought, I look like I'm four years old next to him. <laughs> I mean, that's intimidating. That's it. My sweet mate, my sweet mate, Rod Richardson, was ranked fourth in the world in the hundred. Fourth fastest man in the world. Not in the NCAA, in the world. Uh, another one of my running mate buddies, uh, Arturo Barrios, was on the Olympic team for Mexico. This was the caliber of athlete all around me. And you know what? I didn't reckon myself. I didn't consider myself one of them. Now, the way we would say that today, this would be in the Latin. I didn't have their swagger. I didn't have that. Now, do I know that I'm on the team? Yes, there's a legal document, there's a uniform. I know I'm on the team. But folks, it's quite possible to know something and not actually reckon it true of you. And when you're in that shape, when you're in that position, you are going to fail. Because when you step onto the field of competition at that level, son, you better believe it. And you realize we're not talking about sports anymore. Same is true in the Christian life. See, I can know, I can get to the end of a, a passage and say, okay, there it is, I'm, I'm dead to sin and alive to Christ. I can know that's what the Bible teaches. I can know that is the truth, but not consider it of me. But son, when you step onto the field of competition, you better believe it. Except it isn't a field of competition, it's a field of battle. And what Paul's presenting to us here, folks, is not, it's not positive thinking. It's not pretend thinking. It's not click your heels together three times thinking. This is truth thinking. This is the truth. And you've got to think on that truth until you have it. You've got to believe it until you have it. Got it? So I've got to know the truth. I've got to believe that truth for me. And then I've got to offer myself to the God of that truth. Look at, look at verses 12 and 13. What a, gosh, what a powerful, powerful picture this is here. I think this is one of the most powerful portraits in all of scripture. It says, do not let any sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its desires. And do not offer, folks, gosh, I wonder how often we even think this way. Do not offer any parts of your body when it says it, it's talking about your body. Do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Do you realize your body is being used in a war every day? Remember our question. This is the question. Does sin matter? 
I mean, I'm going to be forgiven anyway, right? I got heaven secured, right? Jesus took care of all that. God's got to sin matter. Paul's going to sin matter. Does sin matter? Are you kidding me, man? You're in a war. And your body parts are being used in that war. I can't use these lips. I can't use this tongue anymore for lying and criticizing and gossiping and tearing down and hurting. I can't use these lips for that. I can't offer these lips to sin and Satan in their war for unrighteousness. I'm not on this team anymore. I died to this team. There's no relationship with this team anymore. Man, I was baptized. I clearly identified that I'm on team Christ. I've got to offer now my lips and this tongue. I've got to offer it to truth. I got to offer these lips to praise and to, and to prayer. I got to offer this for, for witnessing. I mean, I've got to offer these lips and this tongue for love and encouragement to bless. Oh, the power in your mouth to bless every day of your life. Every day of your life, you have an opportunity to bless a situation, to bless a person with these instruments that God's given you. You know, I think... I think based on this passage, folks, I think it'd be very, very valuable to sit down as an individual, to sit down as a family, and and just think about the body parts for a second. And what role each can play in the war. You don't have to come up with an exhaustive list. Just, I think we really need to practically get in our mind, what can my hand do to advance the cause for unrighteousness? What can my hand do that advances evil in the world? Your hand does do things. It can do things. You should say, if we don't stop and think, folks, I'm fearful you and I are walking into every week completely and totally ignorant, stupid, that our body parts are being used in a war and we don't even know what's going on. Well, one way to get over that is to start thinking, hey, when my hand does this, when my hands, when my work is used to do this, it advances, it advances unrighteousness. It advances evil. And likewise, what, what can my hand do for righteousness? What can my hand do for good? What about my eyes, my ears, my mind? Man, what about my private parts? And folks, we sure better be thinking about the private parts because, man, they're being used in a war. Matter of fact, you want to know how messed up we are in this war? When I say the word private parts, we, we snicker and there's shame. You know why? Because we know how the private parts are being used in a war for unrighteousness. We got that real clear. But if I say, can you make a list as a family with how your private parts are being used in a war for righteousness? You know what most of us are going to do? Huh? Matter of fact, it almost sounds weird. Because we have sold out the private parts to unrighteousness. Man, we better help us. We better help ourselves. We better help our kids think about, hey, how are the private parts used in purity? How are they used in glory? Do you know what God calls the marriage bed holy? It's amazing we have no concept of how these can be used. Y'all do remember who made the private parts, right? You do remember who designed them and their use. And yet we've so lost this war. We've completely given parts of our body. We've just given them away to the devil. They're his. Man, I think, folks, every night we get in bed, we ought to lay there just for a moment. I'm talking about real. I'm talking about very practical I just ought to start at the top of my head and work my way down to my feet and say, how are my parts used today? They were used. Make no mistake about it, folks. Your parts were used. I better wake up and start thinking out, figuring out, how were they used today? I can't remain ignorant of this. 
Boy, do you see Paul's flow? His thought? Remember the question, does sin matter? Is sin that big of a deal? Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? You're not on that team anymore. What, you think this is about whether you get away with something? You're not on that team. And you are engaged in a war. You need to know the truth. You better believe that truth for yourself. And you better get engaged in a war. You're already in it. You better get engaged in it and realize how you're offering your parts every single day to that war. Sin's not okay. Sin is not okay. And folks, what we need to change today is not the heaviness of our guilt, but the lightness of our attitude. If you don't leave with anything else, they leave that. When I say sin is not okay, that is not to beat you up and send you out of here feeling worse about yourself because of the sin you're carrying today. What did we learn at the end of chapter 5? God's got all the grace for your sin. You feeling guilty is not usually going to change anything anyway. So we've got that covered. Jesus says, man, I got that covered. This is not about, when I say sin's not okay, it is not about the heaviness of your guilt. Come to Christ. Come to His grace. But when I say sin's not okay, it's about everything to do with the lightness of your attitude about it. Sin's not okay. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would show us if we live this week the places where we're thinking lightly of sin, where we've got it in our mind that that's not a big sin, that's a no big deal sin. God, would you show us where we're justifying sin, where we're making it okay because of what somebody else has done or the situation I'm in in life. God, may we see we're on your team. Man, you've put your colors on us. We've got a legal document, justification, that says I'm on this team. We've got a uniform in baptism where we've been immersed in Christ. We've been enveloped in Christ. We've identified with Christ. God, may we see that we're in a war. I don't want any of my body parts to advance a war against my team. I don't want any of my body parts to be used in a war to advance against my God. God, I fear that I am, that we are just so ignorant of what's going on around us and what's going on in life and the, and the overwhelming power and the evil of sin. God, I'm thankful for your graciousness that forgives us. I'm thankful for your word that wakes us up and instructs us. I'm, I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit that will empower me to live in holiness. God, what a great truth. In the courts of heaven, I've been declared holy. Holy Spirit, would you help me to live that declaration on this earth today? Would you help me to live it this week? And Father, I give you my hands. I give you my feet. I give you those parts that we're supposed to keep clothed. I give you my mouth, my eyes, my mind. God, I give you all of these things. You use them. Guide me in how to use them. So that righteousness is advanced in my life and in my home and in my workplace and school and in my world. Do it through my body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.